Thank you for joining today's episode in SIFMA's podcast series. I'm Joe Seidel, SIFMA COO, and today's host for the podcast. I'm joined today by Peter Ryan, our head of international capital markets and prudential policy, to give us a high-level introduction to the fundamental review of the trading book. The fundamental review of the trading book was initiated by the Basel Committee on Bank Supervision in the years following the 2007, 29, 2009 Great Financial Crisis, with the aim of completely revising the approach of calculating risk-based capital requirements for trading activities. This complex series of reforms will likely have a far-reaching impact not only on the trading business models of large banks, but also on liquidity provision in key funding markets and therefore the ability of certain non-financial end users to raise funds. This is critical given that an estimated 73% of the funding for U.S. non-financial corporations is generated by the U.S. capital markets and because banking organizations remain crucial providers of capital market services to non-financial end users. Given these potentially far-reaching impacts, it is important for us to first understand what the FRTB was designed to do, why we are hearing more about it now, and what is contained in the package of reforms. So with that, I'd uh, like to open it up by asking um, a basic question, Peter. What are the origins of FRTB, and what were the regulators' original goals in designing it way back when, coming out close to 10 years ago? Well, thanks, Jack. Um, I think the use of the word uh, fundamental to describe these revisions was quite intentional. The FRTV was designed by regulators to be a comprehensive root and branch overhaul of the way capital charges for market risk are calculated. Um, As background, the the Great Financial Crisis, or, or GFC of 2007 to 2009, highlighted several core problems with the existing framework for calculating market risk capital. The significant trading book losses incurred by banks during the crisis demonstrated that the overall quantum of market risk capital was simply inadequate to absorb losses during periods of major market stress. Um, Part of the reason for this is that while the the value at risk modeling approach in in that framework did a pretty good job of modeling risk during normal conditions, it, it ended up doing a pretty poor job of capturing extreme market events, what we typically call tail risks. As a result, some banks were left with inadequate capital uh, to absorb the trading book losses that they experienced during the crisis. Um, capital levels were also lower than they should have been because too many credit positions were held in the trading book instead of the banking book, which was a consequence of more favorable capital treatment for credit positions in, in the former. And this proved to be a problem during the crisis as credit ratings changed, credit spreads widened, and unusual default events occurred, which resulted in big trading book losses. Uh, I think related to this, um, there was and, and, and still is a general concern that the boundary between the banking and trading books was, was too fuzzy, and the institutions would be engaging to some degree in arbitrage between them to obtain the most favorable capital treatments. And then there were other structural problems with the existing framework that the crisis uncovered. For example, the pre-crisis framework made a general assumption that trading assets could be liquidated within a 10-day period. Even though this assumption was wildly inaccurate for many markets during normal periods, let alone during periods of stress where liquidity is often short supply. Uh, And finally, regulators became much more concerned about the use of internal models in the post-crisis era, and and this applies across the board, not just in the FRTB, but in other areas as well. Uh, There was a sense that there was a lack of comparability and transparency between banks and across jurisdictions, and a recognition that there were a few incentives for large banks to use the 
relatively risk-insensitive standardized approach to calculating market risk capital. Thank you, Peter. That's great. That's an excellent description, I think, of what the uh, regulators' original goals were as they were crafting this thing. Uh, I guess from there then, um, you know, what are some of the details to address these concerns? How did, how did they want to go about it? So to address all these concerns, uh, the Basel Committee agreed to a package of reforms known as Basel 2.5 or Basel 2.5. Its primary purpose was to raise the overall quantum of market risk capital, which it achieved through a handful of reforms to the existing framework. Um, these included the introduction of a so-called stress bar approach to modeling that better accounted for tail risk events and an incremental risk charge to better capture risks uh, from, from credit-sensitive products in the trading book. Um, these changes increased market risk, risk capital by about two to three times for most banks and increased to address uh, the, the immediate concerns about capital inadequacy. But it was widely acknowledged to be a stopgap measure, and there was a clear sense that the entire framework needed to change at a more fundamental level. So that is where the FRTB comes in. Uh, the FRTB is designed to completely overhaul the existing framework by doing a number of things. First, it's designed to create a clear regulatory boundary between the trading and banking books. Um, second, it replaces that VAR modeling approach to risk measurement with a more comprehensive me uh, metric that is supposed to capture a wider array of risks uh, and an approach known as expected shortfall. Um, third, it revises the standardized approach to make it much more risk sensitive and, and allowing it therefore to be a more credible fallback to the internal models approach or IMA. And I apologize, there are a lot of acronyms here, so we'll try and keep them to a minimum. Um, but IMA is one to remember. Uh, fourth, it replaces the static 10-day liquidity horizon assumed under the bar framework with liquidity horizons uh, varying that vary within the IMA. Um, fifth, it creates a mechanism to account for low levels of liquidity in thinly traded markets. Um, and it does this in the form of a capital add-on charge under the internal models approach or IMA, and that's known as the non-modelable risk factor charge. And finally, it creates a new and more robust approvals process for obtaining a regulatory approval for IMA use and requires that these approvals be obtained at the level of individual desks rather than granting firm-wide approval. Uh, one thing I highlight is that unlike Basel 2.5, the FRTB was not designed with the explicit intent of increasing the quantum of market risk capital in the system. But the FRTB will almost certainly will lead to significant capital increases across the industry. Um, some estimates put the aggregate capital increase at two to two and a half times current levels and will have major impacts on a variety of different markets. So while raising capital may not be an explicit goal in this process, it's an almost certain outcome of FRTB implementation. Interesting. So the FRTB, uh, even at a time when the banking industry has proven itself to be extremely resilient through crises, through multiple stress tests last year, even with all of that, this is, is our new requirements that will lead to even further increased capital costs for banks. What are some of like the real world impacts of, of, of these reforms and, and, and what they will uh, create? That's a, that's a great question, Joe. Um, there will be impacts in every single sector of the capital markets um, with the implications for the ability of a wide variety of end users to, to finance their activities. Um, just to pick a couple of examples, um, 
The Basel FRTP framework does not allow securitization exposures held in the trading book to be internally modeled. This is going to result in significant capital increases for banks engaged in securitization trading and could lead some institutions to pull back from market-making activity. That ultimately leads through to increased financing costs for businesses and consumers. Um, another area is in, is in the corporate bond market. Many smaller corporates may find it harder to raise funds, both generally just because their bonds are thinly traded and, and failed the modelability tests that included in the FRTB. Um, those higher capital charges for banks make it less economic for them to engage in market-making activity in those types of corporate bond markets. Um, emerging markets could be hurt by the implementation of the FRTB. Um, their capital markets are generally far less liquid than they are in the United States and other developed countries, and are thus also more likely to fail the modelability tests included in the FRTB. Um, this could discourage international banks from participating in those markets and force domestic banks to rely more heavily on the capital-intensive standardized approach, again, raising financing costs for businesses and consumers. Um, as a result, one concern is that this could inhibit economic development in some of those countries. So those are a few examples. Um, as I know, the impacts of the FRTB will be felt in every market across the globe. And as new markets and products emerge, they are also going to be shaped by the FRTB. Um, for example, uh, a recent study showed that the reform package could negatively impact the emerging carbon credit trading markets by imposing a more punitive risk charge on carbon certificates, more generalizing penalizing banks for carrying these positions on their books. Yeah, if that isn't fixed, it would obviously impact the board of public policy efforts to combat climate change. So we'll examine those impacts and, and others in more detail in future blogs and podcasts in the FRTB. So uh, for our listeners, be on the lookout for those in the coming weeks. Well, thank you, Peter. Um, thank you for that uh, very, uh, very helpful background. So now that we have a, a, some better understanding of the FRTB's purpose and potential impact, can you provide us with a little more detail on its core components? Absolutely. Um, as I see it, the FRTB standards agreed by the Basel Committee in 2019 can be broken down into four main components or changes. Um, the first is the standardized approach. Um, as I just mentioned, the FRTB completely overhauls the standardized approach to make it significantly more risk sensitive. It does this primarily through something known as the sensitivities-based approach. Um, or SBA, and I know I said they keep the acronyms to a minimum, so we'll, we'll, we'll try, and try and do that here. The, the sensitivities-based approach is essentially a parametric VAR model with regulatory weights. It involves a complex series of calculations that we discuss in more depth in the blog. Um, the standardized approach also includes a default risk charge, which captures credit risk spread, credit spread risks, and a residual risk add-on charge that captures a variety of other risks not fully accounted for by the sensitivities-based approach. Um, the second pillar of the FRTB is the revised internal models approach. Um, as I already mentioned, the FRTB changes the internal models of IMA framework to make it more conservative and harder to qualify for. Um, it makes the framework more conservative, principally through the substitution of the VAR model with an expected shortfall approach um, which regulators think uh, and is generally viewed as being better at capturing more extreme market risk scenarios. Um, 
as we've already referenced it as, and you charge the so-called non-modelable risk factors. That is, as its name suggests, risk factors uh, that are unable to be modeled. Then this most often occurs because there is a lack of readily available data, something that typically occurs in less liquid markets. The new package of reforms in the FRTB also makes model approval vastly more difficult. Um, first, it requires the models to be approved at the level of individual trading desks, which is a change. It used to be at the firm-wide level, and that's a far more uh, resource-intensive process for banks. Second, model approval is made more difficult owing to a variety of rigorous performance testing requirements, uh, the most notable of which are daily PL attribution tests, and that's a topic that we'll also discuss in future blogs, uh, as well as rigorous backtesting requirements. Failure to pass these tests can lead to a loss of IMA approval. Um, in short, then, as you, you might be able to guess, the intended effect of all of these changes uh, to both the standardized approach and the IMA approach is to move more firms and desks out of IMA and into the standardized approach. Beyond the changes to the, both the standardized and internal models approach, the FRDB also creates a clear boundary between the banking and trading books through a variety of new rules including an intent to trade requirement and through the creation of a presumptive list of trading book assets and trading desks. And finally, and this is sort of the fourth pillar as I see it, and this is less of a substance than a process change, the FRTB will require vast increases in the amount and granularity of market risk data that firms are required to gather, test, and monitor. With many tests, such as the PML attribution test I just mentioned, required to be performed on a daily basis. Um, as a result, FRTB implementation will require firms to invest large sums into huge technological builds to meet these new requirements. So that's the 10,000-foot version of what is an immensely complex set of standards. So then one last question then is, as we approach this proposal and, and uh, the U.S. implementation of it, uh, what is the plan? When will the FRTB actually be implemented here in the U.S.? Well, we don't have a definitive answer, but we can make some educated guesses. Um, when the Basel Committee agreed on the final standards in 2019, um, marking the end of what I should note was an almost seven-year process, um, they said January 1, 2022 as a date by which national regulators needed to implement the reforms. That always seemed like an ambitious date, given the complexity of the changes and, and the amount of time firms will need to build the infrastructure and systems to implement them. Uh, the COVID crisis made achieving that implementation date even less feasible. So as a result, the Basel Committee agreed to a one-year extension to their original timeline, uh, moving the implementation date to January 1, 2023. Uh, while some jurisdictions have definitely made progress in incorporating at least parts of the standards into national rules, most are still a long way from finalizing rulemakings, let alone implementing the standards by the end of 2023. And of course, of greatest relevance to us, U.S. banking agencies have even yet to release an FRTB proposal. Assuming that uh, the U.S. banking agencies release a proposal this fall, likely in conjunction with other elements of the so-called Basel III endgame package, uh, the rule itself is unlikely to be finalized until the end of 2022. And that's really just owing to the vastness of Basel III reforms and, and the complex interactions between different parts of it. Um, that makes implementation of most parts of the package in 2023 infeasible and most likely means implementation in the U.S. will extend into 2024 or beyond.
And then given the relative size of U.S. capital markets, will the U.S. need to be first or uh, how, how do you see the U.S. implementation dovetailing or uh, working with, uh, is the goal to have everybody do it all at once or, or in some type of uh, staggered setting across the globe? The goal is to have everyone do this at once. But I think institutions really want to avoid fragmentation um, and inconsistent rules between different jurisdictions. Obviously, there are differences in the markets, and that will be reflected in national discretion and in the implementation of the FRTB. But I think overall, uh, there, is a, there is a feeling uh, amongst the industry and amongst regulators that major jurisdictions should implement this at the same time. So I think that there will be a move to try and coordinate that implementation date. Okay. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you very much for walking us through all of this. It's uh, clear from this conversation that the FRTB represents a, a truly sweeping overhaul of the way banks calculate their trading risk capital charges and will have wide ranging impacts on the business models of banking organizations and funding markets for many years to come. As US regulators move closer to a proposed rulemaking, we will be releasing here at SIFMA a series of blogs and additional podcasts on some of the important outstanding issues that still need to be addressed prior to implementation. So please visit SIFMA.org to follow along. Thank you again, Peter, for joining me today. And thank you very much to the audience for listening. Have a good day. Mm -hmm.